Pick Up The Pace is a rugby union podcast hosted by All Black super fan and Anadu Ryle, two passionate rugby fanatics from Wainui Mata, New Zealand, who go deep into everything rugby without taking themselves too seriously. Welcome back to Pick Up The Pace podcast, you with your man All Black super fan and Anadu Ryle, and today we have a very special guest born on the 15th of July 1975 in the beautiful Palmerston North, went to school at Teote College and from Ngāpuhi, Engatirokoa, husband of Karen, and together they have three kids: son Renata, who plays for Washington DC in the Major League Rugby competition in the United States, and daughters Kaya and Bria. He played for the New Zealand Under 21s and the New Zealand Maori team, club rugby for Petonia and Northcote, provincial rugby for Wellington and North Harbour, Super Rugby for the Highlanders and the Chiefs. One of the legends of New Zealand Sevens team, playing 96 matches and scoring 113 tries. 2001 Rugby World Cup Sevens champion and 2002 Commonwealth Games gold medalist. And now a rugby commentator covering many tournaments including the Rugby World Cup in Japan and the world-renowned World Sevens Series circuit. He oi kotina e Ngāti Raukawa e kōrero ana ki Ngāti Raukawa no reira e te whanaunga, te nā koe, no mai and welcome to the Pick Up The Pace podcast, the legendary Carl Tenana. Cheer brother, good to have you on board. Hey, kia ora boys, and I've been waiting for, uh, for you guys to give me a ring here on the podcast, it's been too long boys, so that's <laughs> mean uh, hearing, you, hearing you follow the virus, it's awesome. Nah, thanks bro, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to come and have a yarn with the brothers, cuz Always a pleasure bro, it's actually really cool um, See you guys like good Māori boys doing some good stuff, man. So it's uh, it's really cool. Ah, killed it to that, brother. Yeah. Hey, cuz, um, so you had an awesome career and you've had some outstanding achievements. But let's go back <laughs> to where it all began, bro. Can you tell us about your childhood and what it was like growing up in the Tanana household? Yeah, I mean, um, for us, it's always um, you know, neighbor rugby's been in the in, in the veins for, for from the, from the word go. You know, like uh, granddad played for New Zealand Māori, and that was always up. They they, they live in Nainai, or house is still down there in Nainai and in, in Lower Hutton. You know, um, Granddad had his um, had had his yellow Maori team in, in the sitting room. That's all you'd see, and that was what we probably held more higher than the All Blacks. I'll be honest, when we were, when we were growing up, and then um, the old man played for Waikato and in Northland as well. You know, so I mean, every time we um, we were out and about, we always always had a you know a rugby ball in the in, in the hands, and then going out there and getting smashed by the cousins and trying to learn how to tackle. That's why I stayed wide and just ran. So. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's it's always been in the bloodline, so it's uh, you know it's probably natural that it's, uh, it's sort of went down that track. Yeah, yeah. So you've got um you got a few siblings. So where you sit in the picking order? You're the oldest or youngest or? I'm the youngest and I'm the only boy, bro. So it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's it's been a, it's been a bit of cheerage, um growing up. You know, I've got three older sisters. One's in um, one lives in Melbourne and um, two are up here in Auckland. So um, it's quite funny when I first made the the Wellington Lions team. Um, all the sisters would uh, would come out, and um, and then I wasn't allowed to talk to any lady, so I don't know how the wife got past those guard dogs, but she did anyway. And I suppose, okay, there she still lived to tell the story. So we was um we was your family home, bro? Yeah, um, mum, mum and dad um went well. well yeah, the family's from Wellington, but uh, yeah. mum and dad moved up to Palmy for for mahis, and then um, um yeah, I was born there, and then we were there for for three four years, and then um. Yeah, we uh, we sort of sort of based out of there, but I'll be honest, bro, I couldn't wait to get out of the joint and um, <laughs> ain't much doing in Palmy. And then um, once I uh, made professional football, all our um, New Zealand Sevens camps were based in Massey and Palmerston. Yeah, also. True, true. <laughs> so, so back home you win, eh? <laughs> oh yeah, bro, it was relentless. But I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's good childhood growing up and still got some good mates there. So it's uh, you know not too bad. 
Yeah. So being the uh, youngest and having three older sisters and that, I suppose they were trying to keep you under the thumb, you know, trying to protect <laughs> the younger brother and that. Were you type of a cheeky kid or did you get in much trouble? Nah, not really. I mean, if you call bombing the intermediate, in trouble, then I suppose. <laughs> nah, nah. I mean, I was, I was pretty, um, I was pretty good. I was spoiled. I'll be honest. I was a mummy's boy because um, the sisters went to Hokeriri up in Hawke's Bay. They were in boarding school, so it was uh, me and mum for a long time until I went to Teote. So, nah. I mean, uh, just, just, just been. Um, parents did a pretty good job with us. No one was in too much of dramas, you know. And you always brought up respectful and. And that, if not, then you got a clip across the backside with a jug cord, so yeah. <laughs> it was pretty easy to sort that out. Oh, yeah, I remember those. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, it was all good fun, though, bro. You yeah, know yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Hey, hey you mentioned Teote College, eh? So you went to Teote College, which to all of our listeners is a Māori secondary school based in Hawke's Bay. So for you, Carl, how important is the Māori language and culture to you, and how did your time at Teote shape you as a person? Yeah, it was a bit of a weird one because all my uncles and that uh, went to Hatotipen out in the St. Stephen's up here in Auckland. So it's um, um, mum's brother went to Teote and then um, um, my cousin went there. So that's how I ended up going there. But I, I loved it. You know, I loved everything about it. So as I walked through the gates and uh, back then, you know, it was a pretty um, old school type scenario. And um, it was you, you learn pretty quick about things and how to do things and, and be respectful. But for me, you know, like being around um, te reo, and being immersed in it, especially um, not being doing that uh, previously, because Mum was big on the the Palangi side with, um, with with science and and, and English and, and stuff like that. Māori wasn't really the big push for her when I was at um, in, in the younger grade. So going to Jyoti, where it is, well, it was it was um, compulsory to take Te Reo and right up until sixth form. And, oh, I loved it, bro. I loved it. You know, and getting that connection from where you're from and knowing where you're from and. Yeah, for sure. um, yeah, yeah, it sort of, um, you know, it, it makes you whole. So it's um, still got a lot of um, affinity, still a lot of good mates to uh, keep in touch with from those days, you know. And um, I think it's really important to be able to, to be able to know that, you know. So you try and pass it on to the kids. And, mm. and, and I would have loved to have sent my young fella there, I'll be honest. But um, you know, it just didn't work out that way. Mm. Have you managed to retain your your deal? No, not not to the not to that extent, though. Yeah. You know, I was actually been thinking about. Um, Taking up courses uh, to, to to get back amongst it, but it's just finding the time, which is always tough, you know. But um, it's no excuse. So mm. definitely keen to to get back amongst. I got a few mates around the hood here, around here where we live that have um, gone total immersion, you know, and um, mm. or something to, to to really aspire to. And even the wife's starting to look at going on um, doing some classes, and she's uh, she's PG, and so yeah. I won't have an excuse soon. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, cool, bro. So, brother George Nepia. The greats, Buck Shelford, Pity Wepu, Ricky Flutie, Norm Hewitt, Kane Hames, some of the famous rugby players who come out of Teoti College. Who are some of your notable players, bro, that you played rugby against during your time or your years at Teoti College? Playing against, oh, geez, Luis. I mean, um, I was in the era we um, we had about 12 traditionals, you know, around the country. And one of the first ones I always had to go to and ones you didn't like uh, seeing in the, in the preseason we turned up to school was Wesley College. So there's a guy called Jonah Lomu at the play against for five years, which just wasn't really much fun, I'll be honest with you, boys. So it's, um, <laughs> seen the big man. Last night, we are actually talking about it. We were wondering, hey, wonder if Carl yeah. marked up Jonah, hey, wonder yeah. how that went down. <laughs> no, he was number eight. Oh, he was, he was number oh, eight back in those days, yeah, so that's... thank goodness. But um, I remember one time we were playing up we were playing up for Wesley and uh, my mate, he was on the left-hand wing and Jonah was in the boot. He said, oh, swap, swap, swap for this move. I said, oh, okay. I didn't really realise what was going on. And then I looked, I was on the short side and he knew Jonah was going to come around to the right <laughs> side of the boot of the scrum. <laughs> oh, man. So needless to say, I was a bit of a speed bump, but um, 
you know, like playing against those guys and, and Carlos Spencer and mm. I remember um, we had uh, Pity's brother, uh, Billy, you, you know, you know, uh, Big Show from down there. Well, I knew yeah, yeah, he, was yeah. our, he was our centre. Yeah, he, was, he was the man, you know, he was, he was the man at school and we were doing uh, Central Regions uh, trials. So we come down to, to Levin to, to have our trial for the Central Regions and we even made that team went on to, to, to go on and get picked for the um, New Zealand school. So um, we were warming up and and we looked over the other side there's a skinny white kid marking our big show or Billy and we thought bro you're going to have a field day today breather and then anyway we got to the first half and the skinny white kid scored about five tries on, on big show we went, holy smokes man you get smoked by this parlong he ended up being Christian Cullen oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah bro <laughs> so fair enough you know fair enough you take those ones yeah, that's so right. um, you mentioned you played with Billy who are some of the other players you played with bro um jeez I'm I don't know if anyone else went on to um, do anything half quite decent, I'll be honest. But, um, uh, yeah, no, nah, there wasn't really... Uh, Mano Fluti, I suppose. Ricky's brother, oh, he's oh, obviously yeah. pretty decent. He's a yeah, good, Mano good, was good always, Avalon um, boy. Played for Avalon down here in Wellington. Mano Fluti. Yeah, but, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he, I mean, he was one of the most talented skill, uh, guys like all around. He could play tennis. He was awesome, man. He could play mm. badminton. He could play bowls. And he was just a man, you know. So he was one of the most talented blokes I've ever seen um, in sports in general, that fella. Yeah, I mean, mm. nice one, bro. Hey, um, bro, when you left school, you played a lot of 15s rugby, eh? So you played club rugby, provincial rugby, super rugby, and re- representative rugby. Uh, but you also had an outstanding career, as we all know, in rugby sevens. So the question is, how did you manage playing both formats during this um, time early in your career? Yeah, I think that was just something that sort of happened. You know, back in those days, it, uh, it was a very similar game, so you could cross code. Yeah, and I just love playing code, I'll, mm. I'll be honest with you. So... Um, by the time you got sick of Gordon Titchens and him thrashing you, you sort of um, got into the 15s and it was a very different environment. And, you, mm. and then you get into some 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 stuff there, you know. So it, 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 I didn't mind the balance. It sort of counteracted each other. So you got a good vibe in both, you know. And mm. um, it, 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 I suppose it was just hard when you started getting into the, into the high grades and, and, and stuff like that. But um, you had to sort of pick one or the other. But, you know, I mean, like to go five years, I think it was, Basically, sevens, fifteens, basically sevens, fifteens. It was cool, bro. You know, we we just we just loved the the, the the game, and it wasn't for the money, it wasn't for the socials, it wasn't for the recognition or all that stuff. It was just um, playing with your mates and, and having a good vibe and, and doing what you love. So, was, I reckon we're probably one of the luckiest times to, to play rugby because it was, um, you know, it wasn't so much about the, the the money deals or the broadcasting deals and all that sort of carry. That's right, and that was just before rugby turned professional as well, right? So. A lot of playing for the love of the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a bit of that, you know, and, and then and we're sort of in the period where when it did go pro, there was a lot of grey areas um, to sort out, you know. So, I mean, there's pros and cons for, for both, you know. But, um, I mean, for me, and just talking to a couple of the, the current All Blacks, even they said they would have loved to be able to play, you know, in our era because you went out, you had a game, you went out, went, went after the game, you go to the supporters club, you go meet with the opposition team, you have a few beers and talk a bit of jibber-jabber and then off mm-hmm. you go, you know, whereas um, when it's professional, the, the, the rules change, you know, you can have a couple of beers in the mm-hmm. opposition changing room, you don't connect with your with your fans so much like that, you know, and, and, and then teams are off on onto their next gig and yeah. doing, their, um, doing their, their rehab and prehab and all this sort of stuff, which is, you know, you have to do, but I think there's still um, an element that you've got to be able to mix and mingle with your fans because they're the ones ultimately are coming to Trinity Gates and then and, and the people that are watching are the ones who want to entertain. Mm. So you mentioned uh, Gordon Titchen, so back in the day there, like who, who inspired you, bro? Like who encouraged you to start actually playing sevens and um, and when did you actually really think, hey, this is my game, this is what I want to play? 
When did that all start? Um, oh, yeah, I mean, um, Sydney was always, a, especially in Wellington, um, once after I left school, well, um, there was all that Trentham Sevens. We always used to go down there and all the big boys used to play and um, you know, you'd have your club, you're playing running against Philo Tutus and Alain uh, Metamiers and those sort of mm-hmm. dudes involving once they... Um, you know, once they pick the, the the provincial teams, but and then and the nationals was always a big carrot, you know, and going down there. And I mean, Hong Kong, we always used to watch them at three o'clock in the morning and, and seeing the likes of Jonah carving up and Rushy and and dudes like that. And then just just talking to me. And that was the first sort of when I went to my first nationals, getting getting into the hotel with all the teams or something new to me. Obviously, with the fifteens, you mm. sort of on your own hotels and do your own vibe. But getting amongst that and. Um, getting to talk to like the Eric Rush in the in, in the hallways and you know getting inspiration from yeah. him and I remember the first time I met him down in Palmerston North and um, he said you know you're doing good young fella just just gave you, gave, you, gave us gave me a few words of encouragement and it really meant a lot you know so yeah. this one guy I'd say they really influenced me right from the get go and then um, uh, the more you sort of succeed in it the more you sort of um, gravitate towards that sort of that, yeah. that, that that style as well you know so it's um, it's always been something I loved and. I'm lucky enough to be successful at it and do some cool things. That's been surreal, though. Like you say, you know, coming into the sevens team, closer environment, you know, a lot less players in the fifteens, and being around the greats like your Eric Rush and that must have been uh, pinching yourself, bro. You know, sometimes. Yeah, well, the thing is, when I first um, when I first made it, we're doing the um, Prince of Wales Cup. Actually, we had the, uh, the old uh, Maori All Blacks trials up here in uh, North Harbour, and um, <coughs> Gordon uh, rang me. I was I was, I was I was playing for Central, so we. we Finished our game against uh, Waipo Namu, and uh, we're in the uh, Ponamu actually up on the on the North Harbour there. And uh, Gordon brings me says, "Oh, look, I want you to come with the camp uh, tomorrow um, and try trial out for, a, for for the World Cup qualifier in Portugal." Wow. So, you hear me? Yeah. So we uh, we we finished our Prince of Wales, and there's Māori boys too. We had a couple, and then <laughs> ended up having a couple too many. And then the guys that had been there previously, like the Brad Flemings and Della Seymour, like, "Oh, cuz you know we've got." fitness testing and stuff tomorrow with a hard training. <laughs> nah, it should be sweet. Anyway, we um, we turned up at uh, training the next day and uh, we did all the fitness tests and, you know, fair enough, it was pretty tough. <laughs> Easy man, sweet ass. But then I didn't realise we had the field training after that. So uh, I got introduced to, to, to what Gordon Pitcher calls death, this game called death. So uh, needless to say, uh, so I sort of died there and uh, Gordon Titchens was quite proud of making me vital on my first training. So it's, uh, it's, right from then I sort of realised, oh yeah, you know, it's an extreme sport and you have to mentally be tough, but I love this right off the get-go, just the closeness of the boys and um, their different vibe and, you know, it's just something that really, really fits. So it was right from the get-go, it was something that sort of just went straight into. Yeah, cool. Hey, um, just as part of our research, I'll, uh, I'll make, uh, Uncle Google says you started your sevens career in 1996. <laughs> well, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, the World Sevens Series, as we know, it started in 1999. Uh, so what we want to know is what, what happened before 1999 in terms of the tournament. So how often uh, were tournaments on and where were they? Yeah, I mean, um, geez, we had, they, had, they always had these um, sub ones that were been there from the get-go, like the Hong Kong, Dubai, mm. um, Punta del Este, and... Um, and then and, 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 uh, Uruguay and Mara Plata so we'd always be in camp um, during the New Year's that's when those ones are on and then went to went, went to they, they, we started uh, making individual ones it wasn't a collective like it is now so they still had the, the Londons and the, and, the, and the likes like that so it's um, we had one in Jerusalem actually the, the oh, Holy Seventh I remember going there yeah yeah that was a bit out of it so yeah. when was that, that was, uh, that was, that was 
What year was that? That, that was that was must have been ninety eight, I think it was. Oh yes, ninety eight. Yeah, but yeah, ninety six was in Portugal. That was a World Cup qualifier, and then ninety seven was the was the World Cup in Hong Kong, and um, you know the, the the tournament started getting bigger and bigger in there, and then um, yeah, then they had the um the the start of the series in nineteen ninety nine. So I was lucky enough to score the first try in the in the series in Dubai against Tonga, which you won I think about fourteen twelve. Oh. <laughs> the very first game on the series, yeah. Close one too, eh? Close call. Yeah, so, well, you know the problems, eh? Yeah, yeah, bro. So you were involved in a star-studded sevens team during your career. What was it like, bro? We talked about um, Eric Rush before, Gordon Titchens, eh? But um, what was it like just being on the same team as those those players, the uh, the greats, the Eric Rush, the Paikokariki Express, Christian Cullins, and the, the Colossus legend himself, Jonah Loma. You talked about playing against him at number eight when you are at high school on the wing and things like that. And then... um. You know all those tough training sessions and those the regimented style of Gordon Titchens and yeah, I mean um, the boys like uh, Jonah and, and Cully and Jolly Bendary is another one and um, Caleb Ralph, Roger Randall. I mean those guys love coming back to the Simmons because um, you know no one really cared if you were Jonah Lomba, you'd still get shit like everyone else, you know. And I suppose that was the beauty of it. Everyone was on the same level and and, and treated each other the same and took the piss out of each other and. Um, Eric Rush, uh, his quote was, "Running a team between them, between the whistles. Other than that, it's every man for himself." So that was sort of the mentality: is like having a bit of fun and and, and um, making a joke of it. But if you're not on point, then someone's going to jerk you. So it's uh, it was always um, always good times, and and like you say, having those lower numbers, you get quite close and stuff. And even like um, you sort of you sort of forget how big some of these guys are because you're so close, and they're just like just one of the boys, you know. So when they go away. Say so like uh, one time, I think uh, we're up in London, and Jonah and Joe really were playing for the Barbarians, you know. So on day one, we're over in the Harlequins Club um, doing our um, round robin stuff, and you could hear, you know, eighty thousand shouting for Jonah when he's running over five English blokes, you know, and, and, and the, for the Barbars. But then, as soon as that was over, he came and played for us on, on the Sunday, you know. So it's him and Joe Ellie. So it's um, it was that sort of vibe where they where, where they'd want to come and play, but you forget how big. Yeah. These guys globally are, you know, so they're like, oh, yeah, whatever, you drop kick, you know, go get the water. But you see these, all these people trying to go get a touch of Joe and then he's, um, you know, going to get the water. So it's, it, was, it was quite surreal. But to, you know, to this day, even like Kelly's one of the most humblest blokes. He's another guy that um, he sort of gets probably one of the best fullbacks we've ever had and to play in a black jersey. But he's, he's just one of the boys, you know, and I think um, that's something we still sort of, sort of chill and vibe with now and just, Pretty lucky, you know. Pretty, pretty lucky, and pretty special to be part of a, a team that had so many guys that sort of changed the game, and Absolutely. not only for New Zealand, but but, but globally. You know, some of these guys, um, what they did in the Black Jews and at the highest level, no one's ever been able to replicate again. You know, so it's um, it's, it's pretty cool to, to be able to call those dudes mates, and um, you know, still still be able to vibe now and everything be cool. So I heard um, Eric Rush, uh, a few whispers that he's a bit of a jokester, eh? What sort of uh, crack up jokes or something that well, you know, on tour, you know, like uh, any stories when you're rooming or? Oh yeah, no, he was, he, he was yeah, well, he's too intelligent for half of our mugs. I'll be honest <laughs> with you, tell you that. That's why it was too easy to take the piss out of some of these boys. But um, I, I remember I was um, we were in Hong Kong, and I was only young. And when a young guy, usually the youngest gets um, on their first tour, room with the with the captain, so I sweet ass, and then. Um, Eric was quite quite meticulous, you know, with his rim and what have you. And being a young fella, you know, he just chucked stuff down and he's like, boy, you don't chuck your stuff down, you know, you, you got to put your stuff nicely and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. 
Anyway, the next after the next training, we come home the next day. He's got the black insulation tape and he's put it right down the middle mm-hmm. of the room. Mm-hmm. And he goes, "That's your side, <laughs> and this is my side." All right. <laughs> and I noticed how we put the TV on his side. I was like, "Oh, okay, yeah, shot caller, sweet ass." Oh, what a cracker! And he goes, "Hey, there he goes. Hey, where's the remote? Hey, on my side." Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I had to get up and chase a channel every time. You know, but uh, you know, it was, it, it, Rushy was one of those guys, though. You know, like that made you feel comfortable, but you know, and it made you want to play for him. Yeah, you know, he, didn't, he, he wouldn't say much, but when he did, it sort of meant a lot. You know, so I mean, yeah, he was a jokester when we got up and um, and, and he did his speeches and we did our um, promos and that. It was really funny, but I think the thing and. Probably the, what sticks out for me, he was probably the best captain I've ever been involved with and ever seen operate, you know, and making people probably play above their level than what they thought they could themselves, you know. So I think he's been, a, he's one of those guys that really galvanizes, galvanizes a team and, and stands up for the lads when he needs to, but makes them work when he thinks they need to as well. So I think he's put, that's been a real secret of probably Rushy and, and, and I think he's, you know, between him and Cerebi, probably the two best players ever mm. play the game of sevens. Mm. Yeah, for sure, 100%. So you mentioned before uh, Sir Gordon Titchens, um, the training regiment. What was it like being coached by the legendary Gordon Titchens and um, what would a normal training day be like? Yeah, um, like when I was saying, we, um, we had our uh, camps down in Palmerston. Like, if he didn't think we were fit enough, uh, he'd go to Rushy and say, look, we need to go for a run. So we'll get up at probably 6 o'clock in the morning. We'll do this um, probably 30, so it was equated to a 30-minute 30, 30 sprint around the, around the field. So we'll do that till 6.30, quarter to 7. Then we'll go have a wash, have breakfast at 7.30. We'd we'll be back on the field at 9. And um, we didn't have any restrictions back in those days in terms of uh, yeah. how long you could stay on the fields and, and stuff like that. Like the Players Association, now you can only be on the field for an hour this day, an hour that day. Well, that, that didn't... There wasn't an, in play when we were when we were training, so uh, when we were playing, so um, <clears throat> we'd go on the field at nine, and we'd be training till twelve. You know, so we'd have three hours straight running. And when I mean running, like when we had water, he'd he'd stop the stop the stopwatch, and then it started again once we got into our drills or games or whatever we're doing. So, I mean, it was an hour training, but it blew out to you know, I'd say an hour, but it'd be three hours in total, you know, so then we'd uh, break for lunch, have lunch, and then we'd do an afternoon session and probably play games, you know, six or seven games on top of that. So that, that was that was a normal day. And I'll be honest, like, uh, it was so intense. If we didn't have a fight, it was probably a good day at the office because, um, you know, guys, were, we retrained we, we how we played. And I suppose that's why we were so successful. And I suppose yeah. the strength of Gordon was he made you mentally tough. He made you fit, but he made you mentally tough, you know, like, um, was probably not the most technical coach. I thought Rushy you know, took a lot of that on on board in terms of how we would um, defend or how we would attack. But I mean, um, that would get you in the line. He'd, 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 he'd break you and then he'd go harder, you know. And that's probably been a real feature of um, why so many players went through the sevens program and, and then got on to be All Blacks just because they're mentally tough, you know. And um, that was probably a reason why we beat the Fijis and, and beat the. the the other teams like Samoa, the Pacific Island teams, there was a lot of teams that were physically better than us, mm-hmm. you know, but we were the fittest on tour and we were the mentally toughest. So we'd just grind people down, we'd come up with tactics, the way we want to approach teams and, and we'd snap them, you know, and that's why we won so many, um, so many um, series on, on, on the trot. And, and, and now the landscape's changed and you had to recalibrate and, and, and 
mm. do that, you know. But um, you know that, that, that's why he's been so successful, the or the most successful coach in, in the game of sevens. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose <coughs> it's like the old saying: even with boxers, eh, it's not what you do in the ring; it's what you do outside of the game, eh? That yeah. makes you uh, good. Yeah, and, and and the thing is, like that, that, that's what because Rushy's a, a, a mad boxer as well. So, I mean. There's a point where you get to physically, but that's when the mind has to take over, and there's a lot of similarities in terms in terms of those two sports, you know. And, and when you get to that top level, that's all it's about, you know. It's all about mentors, it's all about who can push, who can snap the other person. It's not so much about the physical because everyone's pretty much the same there. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, uh, yeah, there's, 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 that's been a big part of um, of, of the sevens is that, that mentality. Mm. So from 1999 up until 2003 when you retired, it was a golden era for the New Zealand Sevens team. You had the World Sevens Series, which started in 99. You had the World Cup Sevens in 2001. You had the Commonwealth Games in 2002. Looking back at this era of success, which moments stand out for you during this period and why? Um, probably um, running out with the boys, being able to lead the boys out for the for the Rugby World Cup and in uh, Mario Plata in Argentina there. We'd never won one previous to that. Mm. And um, Rushi had gotten injured the, the day before, the day before finals day, you know. So it's, um, it was a pretty somber moment. We actually, me and we were playing England and me and Rushi um, affected attack on one of the English boys and um, he ended up shattering his, his fibula. So he, he got put on the, the plane straight away back to back to NZ on finals day and we had to say goodbye to him and did a big hucker and then all the boys were having a bit of a tonguey and um, we went up to the rooms a bit somber, and then uh, got a phone phone call goes in the room, and it was a pitch saying, "Oh, can you come into the room, please?" And I said, oh, "Okay, sweet." Didn't really know what it was for, what it was about, and then um, pitch goes, "Oh, well, I want you to to captain the captain my team for the for for the last day at the World Cup," and sort of come as a, a shock, I'll be honest, and um, didn't really recognise it. What um, what what it all meant? So I said, "Oh, I can have a couple of minutes to think about." Let's go to my room. He goes, "Yes, yeah, sweet." First call made was back to mum and dad and say, "Oh, what do you reckon?" The old man goes, "Oh, well, you don't get many chances to captain your country, so um, why not give it a nudge?" So sweet air sounds good to me, and sort of went went back to Tennessee. Yeah, not good to go. So um, you know, it was, it was a real privilege to be able to run out in front of forty thousand screaming Argentinians, you know, and, um, and and lead the boys. And and, and Jonah was was Rushy's, um was Rush's roommate there, so he was he was um, he was on a mission to uh, to really stand up for his for his buddy. So it's, uh, it was just one of those those days in the game of sevens that I've never, never ever been able to say that we played the most pure sevens I've ever been a part of. You know, everyone was just just uh, at their maximum and where they were supposed to be when they were supposed to be there. There wasn't many much communication on field. Everyone was just on that on that level what we used to call the green zone, where you, where everything's just perfect and. That's probably three games of, of perfect sevens I've, I've ever been a part of, and we never reached there again. But to be able to do that for Russia and then and for the country, and for it to be our first ever um, rugby World Cup of sevens win, and to be able to be the one to lift it, uh, it you know, first for, for us was something that sort of stands out um, straight away for mine. It's always going to be something special. Mm. And what about in 2002 with the Commonwealth Games? So Russia came back for that, didn't he? Eh? Yeah, yeah, and no, he came back. And that was a funny one. That was a funny one for me because I'd. Um, been part of the Chiefs and, and, and got a bit injured, so I was having these back issues and only just made the cut, I'll be honest, to, to get over there and then had more dramas when we, when we got, got to England. But um, I wasn't able to, to go in the finals. It was a funny old funny old feeling, that one, for me personally, because um, you, know, you always want to be involved. And, and for me, if I wasn't on the field, I didn't feel like I was, I was making uh, doing my part. So it was, a, it was a tough one for me. 
you know, so it's, it's something that's sort of, yeah, it's a, it's a stoke that did it, and it was a good, great experience being in the village and mix and mingling because I, I was brought up on track track and field and because the old man was a, was a sprinter. So um, to be able to watch guys like Frankie Fredericks, who I, I thought was an amazing sprinter, and seeing him go to work and um, watching some of the guys when we were back here, and New Zealand people when we were back here and at, at the Millennium, those individual um, people doing their trainings like Beatrice Farmoina and, and those ones go through there, the way they prepare was something that was um, quite unique and cool to see. And um, but yeah, it was a it was, it was a funnier one for me. But no, no, really cool to be um, and privileged to, to 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 be able to still get a gold medal at the end of the day. Yeah, well, not everyone can say they got a gold medal either, eh, bro? It's massive. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's actually uh, near a place where we one of my um, one of my best mates and, and Shane Cameron. He was over there boxing. Oh yeah. Oh. Um, and we yeah yeah they were they were on the floor above us. So it's um, him and uh, Danny Codling and those guys. We used to go watch them uh, do their warm ups because Russia, like I said, Russia was mad on boxing. So we'd um. We go watch them do their warm ups, and they had a prefab uh, where we used to, right next to where we used to train. So we'd um, watch them warm up and go through their stuff, and then motivate the boys to go out there, and we um, we'll go out and do our training. So it was, it was pretty cool to, to be in the same place as them and, and see how they uh, how they get, go about their business as well. It was cool. Yeah, nice. So the Hong Kong Sevens, who started back in uh, 1976. Man, that makes me feel old. It's only a year after my birthday. Before I was born, bro. Before you were born. <laughs> Uh, you're just a little baby snapper, <laughs> and um, so it's the, it's the most famous sevens tournament in the world. What makes the tournament so popular? Um, yeah, I mean, like I said, for, for, for me, um, you know, like getting up at three o'clock in the morning and watching the Hong Kong sevens, watching the Eric Rushes and Dallas Seymours um, play against the, the those legendary Fijian sides, and 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 the games that they play were, were were amazing, you know. And then you see Jonah blow up, then you see Cully blow up, and then you see getting Osborne blow up and just seeing how it was a launch pad for, for a lot of guys to go on and make the black jersey was, was something quite special, you know, and, the, and just the TV coverage and the hype that was around it. You know, it was one of the first tournaments where it was a party. It had all the, the lights and the glamour, and, and, and one of the big things was the ads. Hong Kong always had cool ads, so that's when everyone would get up in between games and start dancing. And then you got the South Stand, which was the party zone, which was, you know, crazy. You see... 15, 20,000 people in one stand just going nuts and all having a good time. And, you know, it was the, it was the first taste of the big show for a lot of us you know, in terms of rugby and, and what an event was, not just the rugby game, it was an event. So, um, like you said, it's got their history behind it. There's so many great players that had graced the field there and <clears throat> global superstars, you know, and um, to be able to be a part of that and first time to, to really experience that was something crazy, you know. And I was hooked right from the get-go when I, as soon as I ran out and, you go into Suncom Post Stadium, you just see that South Stand buzzing. It was just everything about it. I just loved and oh no, and just and just to be a part of it and then um, to, to, to see your mates like Cully and Joe carving up and just just to try and be there and emulate that was um, something was always something pretty cool. So you won the you won the tournament a couple of times, eh? Yeah, we won. Yeah, I was lucky enough to get the three, one three, I think. And the thing is too, bro, like because um, it was so. So such a big tournament. Everyone went over to, to to try and win it. So it was it was and then and back in those days, you had like a hundred thousand US as the prize money. So oh. the Fijians would always. That's why they were so successful. They'd always bring the big boys there to True. try and get the money. You know, so that's probably why it ended up being so epic between us and them. You know, you know for for a long time. So it was always um, to get game supremacy there and then and beat the Fijians predominantly. Then you know you're you're doing okay. Hundred k, jeez. You talked about Fiji, right? Um, which countries did you enjoy playing against the most and why? 
I mean, Fiji always, because they got the best. They were, they were the best. They were probably the ones that we had the most history with, obviously, with um, with, with Hong Kong predominantly. And then Dubai was another one where they had a lot of a lot of history behind it. It's been going for a long time, a lot of prize money. And then um, uh, then you had, like, a Mara Plata. There was a um, yeah, Punta del Este. They had um, cars on the line. If you want the car, then you split that up and stuff like that. And that was their sender for Fiji to bring their top team and. Um, that's what you gauge yourself on when you're playing the likes of Waisale Serevi and Marika Vunimbaka and Filamoni de la Sal and those guys, you know, they, they bring the best out of you. And um, so that, that was probably something that, that for me, um, always tried to, to gauge yourself against. And um, Aussie, Aussie had a good team one year too. I, I think that was, that was another team like enjoyed playing against. But the problem's always, never mind playing against them because you never want to lose against those blokes. Just looking back at your illustrious career, uh, your illustrious sevens career. What is one thing that you are most proud of looking back? Um, I suppose just just feeding on what our ethos was, um, passing it on to Liam was the next captain after me. So I think Rushy passed it down to me of what I spoke about, like making sure the boys are on point, passing on that no one's bigger than the other, and it's all about respect and mm. and, um, and and humbleness, you know. And and, and Rushy and, and predominantly started that, passed it on to me, and I, and I think for me. To be able to pass it on to Liam, we passed it on to to DJ and those guys. You know, it's something that I, I hold quite close mm. and quite proud of, and mm. being able to be a part of a of a team that's been so successful, and that being the main thread of it. And um, even uh, Alan Bunting, who, who was part of the New Zealand Sevens uh, there for a little bit, and he's coaching New Zealand uh, Women Sevens now. He's used that ethos to, to to create what he's doing with his skills at the moment has been really successful. So to be able to be say you're a part of that, and other people take that and emulate that and be successful is probably something that you're always going to hold close and something I'm pretty proud of, I suppose. No, awesome, bro. We all know that the Rugby Sevens is now an Olympic sport, which means other countries like the US are investing more resources into the game and, and becoming more competitive. And we've seen that as, as the results uh, through the to the recent years and that. Do you reckon New Zealand should be right about this, bro, or consider selecting All Blacks 15-a-side players again? Yeah, I mean, um, we got lost there for a little while. We got caught behind the eight ball. Um Four, about four years ago, you know, and that's yeah. when the, a lot of the countries did catch up, you know, when they did mm. um, put, put 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 money and resources and, and, and more thought into their programs, you know, and centralised. I suppose that's probably the thing we got we got um, caught at. We weren't centralised quick enough, and and um, a lot of teams were. So we'd uh, get in to training for a week, and then um, then go over and then have their game week. So. Um, you know they were on the, they were catching up. You know they were, they were still they can do their fitness, but team wise and combination wise, they only had two weeks under their belts. Whereas other countries such as the US and Canada and and then their likes would be together, you know, four weeks or three weeks out of the month, which is a huge difference. So yeah. um, that, that was something that we sort of got caught flat on. But you know the boys have adjusted to that, and they're all centralised now. And I think. Um, at the moment, we've probably got the most consistent team on the, on the circuit, most successful team are at the top of the standings. And I think um, at, at the moment for the series, and I think uh, we're in a good place. We're in a good place right now. Over the last, uh, I don't know, eighteen months, twenty months, I think we've seen a real change with Clark Laidlaw being back in their team, and mm, yeah. um, a lot of it's been player dri- driven. I'll be honest. Like we've got a lot of experience here with Scott Curry and Timmy Mickelson, and um, we've got a lot. of um, boost with enthusiasm of these young blokes as well. So 
I think uh, it's probably the first time we've had a fully fit squad in a long time. So I think that's really, really made a huge difference for our lads in the last this season in particular. What do you reckon? Like the All Blacks fifteen aside players and joining them into the sevens is that unfair? We've seen it back in uh, Argentina and the likes of Sonny Bill coming in and a few, um, you know, a couple of players left out and uh, all just all just stick to the you know the the sevens that we've got now, bro. Oh, I mean if. Damien McKenzie put his hand up and said, you know what, I want to come and play sevens. I don't think he'd say no. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Or or Rico, you know, or Rico Ioane or guys like that, you know. I mean, Georgie Bridge, I mean, far out. Mm. Even even, um, even Arsenio, I mean, you try, try and stop that bloke. He loves yeah. the physical stuff. You have him on the edge. That's, a, mm. that's another beast altogether, you know. So, I mean, love to see those blokes amongst it. I'm sure they'd love to be amongst it. And to be honest, I mean, before this, this virus, I mean, there was nothing much doing anyway in terms of the All Blacks. There's no Lions. There was, mm. you know, they've got Scotland and Wales, and no disrespect to them. Mm, yeah. um, they're very different squads, you know. There's, there's no, no real big carrot yeah. apart from an Olympics. So I think, you know, the All Blacks or whoever ended RU, HQ, they should have said, look, open up the, the teams. If you want to go play for the for the Nato and Olympics and play for the Sevens, here there's open book, you go hard. Mm. You know, but sometimes we go back to the front here in New Zealand, so it's, I would have loved to have seen it, you know, and, and and I'm sure a lot of the boys would have loved to have been a part of it. So it's, um, and I know a lot of the other seven squads, countries have got some big boys in the wings waiting as well. So, mm. you know, it's probably opportunity. We talk about brands. They've got this new All Black 15 they've bought in and then and, and created, but there's no bigger brand than the Olympics. So why not have your biggest stars there that uh, want to be there and showcase them and say, look, this is the All Black Sevens, this is the All Black brand. and. Mm get it out there that way, you know. So for me, it's, it's pretty tunnel vision in terms of how they're looking at it. So hopefully that changes, you know, in, in, in the near future. But I think it's just a big opportunity. Hey, I just wanted to talk about the uh, women's game. So the women's game has grown um, hugely since you've retired. So the first Women's Sevens World Series was in 2012, starting with only four tournaments. Uh, there are now eight tournaments uh, in this current World Series, um, but there are ten tournaments for men. So the women's game is slowly catching up to the men's. Um, but these are, I've got a couple of questions for you around that. When will we see full integration of the men's and women's World Series circuit, and also equal pay? Is it worth paying? Yeah, the women are on equal. Yeah, the, the women are on equal pay with the lads now okay. uh, in, in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're um, that's all squared away, um, and deservedly so. Deservedly so, you know. So, mm. I mean, um, the thing is with the at the moment, it, it, it's a tough one because I know the rugby um, are trying to get that equality in terms of the, the number of series stops for the ladies, and, and I know they're wanting more um, co-tournaments uh, held together in terms of what we saw in Hamilton and in in Dubai and, and Hong Kong was supposed to be the you know another one. South Africa was one that they um, co-hosted, but it's just a tough one at the moment. I think um, personally, it's 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 hard because um, twelve hours of rugby when you ha- when you have the two tournaments, men and women's together, it's twelve hours of rugby basically, mm-hmm. and it's just too long, too long for people, and, and a lot of numbers are down in terms of um, going to the games and watching because no one can stay there for that long. So yeah. it's getting a balance, you know, and and, I, and sometimes I feel the women get lost amongst the men's tournaments. You know, these ladies are superstars and mm. sometimes I just think if they're by themselves and at a different time than the men, then they, we can build them up to be their own global superstars like the Porsche Woodmans, like the Sarah Hiddenies, like the Stacey Flulers and, 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 and the likes, you know, and grow their brand and then maybe come together in, in certain um, tournaments like 
pretty much like what uh, I envision is the um, they'll do it like the tennis. You know, you have the the women's tour, you have the men's tour, and then you mm-hmm. come together for like grand slams, which I think would be cool. But you know, obviously our our, our ladies or well, or the ladies, I should say, would. Um, you know, I think it takes a while to grow their brand, and doing it together, I think sometimes they get lost. Yeah, mm. um, it, it get lost at the moment. So it's just figuring out how to how to build them up to to where they're, they're their own entity and sustainable business wise and, and and financially, so then they can run and be their own branch. Because these ladies deserve to get, you know, the other ladies. I mean, our ladies are flying because they get the same as the men, but some of the other countries don't, you know, so it's been able to prop them up and make them stars and, and get financial backing from different sponsors so they can get the same pay as our girls and then um, off they go, you know, because my, 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 my nieces want to play sevens. They they um, watched the the, um, the condors last year and rang me up, Uncle, can we take us for trains and they want to get amongst sevens. So cool. my little daughter, my little one, she, she's thinking about it. She's at Meg, so it's something very close to me and I want them to be able to, you know, be, be able to reach those heights and, and have those opportunities, same as the blokes. So, um, just being a consultant, what I'm doing now with World Rugby is just trying to figure out a way where it all sort of meshes together and both comps are financially viable, so we can pay our athletes what they deserve. Hey, bro, you're now one of the world's top rugby commentators. Um, can you talk us through how that journey all started around the rugby commentary? Yeah, well, after 2003, went to with Japan and, and played over there, and then. Um, the young fella, he, he was starting to get a high school age, so we brought him home and um, and then uh, sort of had six months off once once we uh, once we got back. And then um, the, the guy who was running running uh, the production for for I think it was TVNZ back in the days for the covering the Sevens Tour series and putting it on TV, I um, I, I ran into him just just happenstance and. She said, what are you doing? I said, oh, mate, just, just chilling at the moment. She goes, oh, come down and check out what I do. So he took me into the truck at one of the tournaments and showed me how we all put the put the broadcast together. I said, oh, this is pretty mean. And then um, so so I ended up just observing a couple of a couple of gigs and then um, on code, uh, when, when, he, when we had our coach show, when the fellow who ran it, he rings me up and goes, oh, the boys have just won the, um, the seven series. You want to go and interview them? So he obviously knew quite a few of the boys. I said, oh, yes, we did. So we went down to Auckland, Auckland Airport and um, had a bit of a laugh with the boys and um, they put it on code. And then uh, Sky TV saw it and said, oh, look, you want to come and um, try out a game? So did some commentary on a game and ended up having a blindness. So they said, oh, you want to come and do a couple more? Nice. Pre-season stuff. So I yeah, did a couple more and then I sort of slowly built year after year and got more and more games. And then um, I tried the coaching. I tried a lot of other stuff and didn't really suit but for me the TV just, just fit right and it was sort of my way of giving back to the game and what it's given to me so it's um, yeah it's been a journey bro it's been like 14 years now since i um, been in the gig but uh, I love it you know and a guy who's close to you and, and did the intro for you follows Ken Laban he was a real mentor for me early on and um, he took me under his wing for my first year and taught me a lot and um, taught me a lot of stuff that I could take from my rugby experience in terms of preparation and getting ready for a game and making sure everything's squared away and doing all my prep. Well, you can do that with your with, with your TV stuff as well, making sure you got all your team lists, making sure you mm. pronounce the names right, you know, because you don't want to pronounce uh, your nephew's name wrong and auntie's waiting for you to, to give you a slap around the ear say, no, that's not right. So 
just doing all those sort of things right and putting put, putting the metro in their own place. So it's um, mm. you know it's been it's been, been awesome, and that's sort of how I how I fell into it. So we actually had the uh, honour of going up to Napier a few weeks ago, bro, watching the uh, Hurricanes versus the Sunwolves, and we um, hung out in the commentary box for a little bit and seen it all go on. And um, you forget how, you know, you've got the two commentators and how it's actually mm. broadcasted globally, you know? So you've got to try and, I suppose, keep that stuff out of your mind. Um, and people at home, they don't see the work and the preparation mm. behind the scenes that actually goes in to make it seem so fluent, bro. So what are some of the attributes that's required to be a mean-ass commentator? Um, one thing I, I I sort of found out, you know, it, it takes a little while to find your confidence, but when you do, uh, um, for me, it's like, I, and, and uh, one of my roles at Little Rugby is trying to find new talents and, and bring them on and, and, and then mentor them. One thing I say to them, you know, is like, you have your basic structure of how you go about your business, your team list and um, what comes up on the, on the on the pitches and you talk about it, but um, everyone sees the game differently. I see it different to you, different to uh, Christian Cullen, different to uh, Ken Laban. You know, everyone views the game differently in what they look at. So I think for me, it's about being yourself and not shying away from that. You are who you are. So, I mean, that's the point of difference for you individually. You know, so if, if the way I talk about the game is different than Ken's, you know. So Ken's true to him and I'm true to me and I think that's what makes a difference and I think that's a big part of, part of it and you bring your own your own character to, to the TV, you know, without being too silly and going too wayward. You can have a joke. You don't take the piss out of the game or the people that's playing it. You can take the piss out of yourself. That's fine. Yeah. So that, 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 that's one thing, you know, you've got to be mindful of. You've got to be mindful of once you say it, it's out there forever, you know. So you've got to get yeah. stuff right as, as much as you can, you know, in yeah. terms of pronunciations of people's names because, you know, if someone said my name wrong, you know, of course you're going to be hurt. So are the family, so that's yeah. one thing. I really try and stress is you got to get the names right, whether it's Maori, whether it's Balangi, whether it's Spanish, whether it's French. It's mm. it's huge for people to have their um their family up on TV and playing the game that they love. So mm. for for me, that's one thing that's non-negotiable. You got to try and get the names right. And you can't take the piss out of the game or the people playing it. And then on top of that, you have fun with it. You you keep true to yourself. And then you know it's um it's just, it's just put your head down and work hard and do some good yards. So it's mm. um it's just a privilege. It's a real privilege to be able to um to be able to be in that position. That's one thing um, I really think that some people lose uh, in, in, in the commentary box sometimes. They think they're bigger than than the game. Well, the games is what's given us this opportunity. It's a real privilege. And we have some cool officers like you boys saw in, in Hawke's Bay, where it'd be Hawke's Bay, where it'd be Twickenham. You know, it's a really cool opportunity. So it's, um, you know, you never take that for granted and you always uh, put your best foot forward because you're only good as your last game, as Ken would say. So it's uh, make sure it's a goodie. Yeah, that's right. Hey, you've commentated uh, games from first 15 level all the way to Rugby World Cups. Uh, what's been the most exciting match or moment that you've called as a rugby commentator? Oh, jeez. Um, uh, it's, it's, that's a tough one. Like, um, last year was my first World Cup from start to, to finish. Obviously, doing the World Cup final was um, something that was really special and I know the old man was, was, was pretty proud of and, and the family. Um Oh, geez, to, to call, I suppose. Here's one for you. Um, we've never had um, uh, any of the Māori, Māori boarding schools on, on Sky First of Things. So um, to be there with, with Ken, actually, down at Chiaiti and doing a home game, I think they were playing Wanganui Collegiate. So for, for that game to be on First of Things in the first um, 
first Māori boarding school, the beach and trying to be part of that was, was, was probably something special. I was, I was quite proud of being able to take it back to the old kura, so it's, um, mm. that's probably one that really stands out. You said that you're now a um, consultant for world rugby. Sounds pretty fancy, cousin. Jeez, that title. Um, <laughs> what does that role actually mean, bro? Yeah, so um, for me, I was doing the commentary for such a long time. Um, you know, I wanted to start moving into the administration side. So for me, um, I want to have more handle on how the sevens game in particular is run. And um, there's a lot of decisions being made, I think, in terms of the game. And we just spoke about it before with the women's and the men's. There's some people in up, up north in, 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 in the head office that were rugby making decisions that I don't think actually make sense rugby-wise. So yeah. um, I sort of went to my boss and said, look, I want to still keep doing my um, commentary stuff, but I want to start getting learning the administration side so I can start building myself up to to, to get in a position to, to get a seat at the table and start making be one of the ones to try and make decisions that, that, that count, you know, because being from a former player and, and, and now being on the broadcasting side, I've learned that. So forget the administration side as well. Then you can take everything into account and start making, I think, better decisions for our game and how it's how it's um, how it's facilitated and how it's run and, and, and things like that. Because I think at the moment we don't have enough rugby voices on there to, to say, you know what, well, no, nah, that's not going to work because of X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. Whereas at the moment, some people are going, right, let's do this decision. But when it comes to actually uh, performing that and merging it, then it doesn't sort of work. And that's what we're sort of seeing at the moment. And the example is that, like they took away the quarterfinals and the men's tournaments when the mm. when the men's and ladies are combined. Well, that's probably one of the most important games in the game of men's sevens, you know, because you get a second chance. Mm. But it's just too hard now. And then the, the men's side of the draw, you can get tipped up by the likes of Spain or Wales, and that you know that's just just how it is in the men's. That's just reality in the men's sevens. So to take that major game away, and we saw what Fiji uh, dropped out. Um, South Africa dropped out in Hamilton, and they were leading the the comp at that stage so I think um, decisions like that we just need to, to be a bit more smart but yeah. Um, yeah I'm just trying to work my way through that and, and um, try and get educated and um, hopefully at some stage try and get up there and uh, for me like my whole buzz now is trying to uh, lead a path for, for, for Māori broadcasters you know been, mm. been a lot of firsts um, you know especially with world rugby and, 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 and now being in a position where like I said before I can mentor be part of um, uh, the crew that, that, that helps um, crew the, the Sevens tournaments, picking the commentators that go on to the series. Um, you know, for me, it's all about trying to promote Māori or trying to promote our Pacific Island brothers and sisters to say, you know what, it doesn't matter where you're from. If you're good enough, you can come and be on the seven series and be a broadcaster and, mm. and uh, make a living there. So that, that's my whole buzz at the moment. And um, if I can do that at a board level as well, then um, you know, hopefully you can... can, can start leading the way to say, you know what, if you come from Palmerston North, you can go up and go live in Dublin and start making decisions about our game. Why can't you? You know, no, mm-hmm. A lot of people think we can't. You know, Someone's got to be the first and take the hits, but more than glad to do that. And, and hopefully um, we get more, more, more of our um, more of our tanata up there and, 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 and on the world stage doing it with what, what you guys are doing, broadcasting, or they want to get into administration at World Rugby at the, at the highest level because I don't think we have enough opportunities, enough people representing carving that pathway for others, not holding that in and saying, hey man, this is this is my gig, I'm not going to expand mm. on this, but actually bringing people in mm. and, um, you know, and leading them down that road to success, bro. That's awesome, man. Yeah, yeah, and just giving tools, because, you know, we, 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 we can vibe, bro. We, we we can do stuff off the cuff. We can do stuff other broadcasters can't or other people can't, you know, and I think we should celebrate that, you know, and um, 
I think that's probably something we've always, like I said, always bought from the Sevens and something Ken Laban's instilled in me as well, you know, and um, I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just really proud of what some of our whānau can do, so putting them on a platform to succeed and helping them get there, I get just as much satisfaction mm. of seeing that than me getting there myself, you know, so that's mm. that's my whole buzz at the minute. Mm. Hey, bro, we just wanted to touch on whānau, eh, and the importance of whānau, so we touched on this at the very top of the episode, uh, your wife Karen and your three kids, um, you're away a lot uh, for your mahi, your work, and uh, your son lives over in the States. Can you tell us a bit more about your whānau and how, how you all support each other with the busy lives you all have? Yeah, yeah. I, I told old, uh, the wife, Karen, if, uh, mate, I wouldn't I wouldn't marry me if I was you, but um, <laughs> <laughs> she's a good lady, you know. She holds it down at home, you know, and um, the girls have known dead. It's hard, it's hard, you know, no one dead yeah. being away, but um, for me now, like, I, I bring them on tour, say, like, you know, you pick a couple of legs and they can they can come along and, and still um, vibe that way, you know, just for the last um, couple of trips in the US and, and um, with the Sevens in, in Los Angeles and Vancouver, I went and was lucky enough to go watch the young fella go play in Houston, he was playing for his, for his club and caught up with him there, and, um, you know, just, you know, my, Mahi's, Mahi's on when, when Mahi's on, you know, and um, when I'm here during the week, you know, I do all the cooking and cleaning and uh, do the washing and make sure all the girls are ready to go for school and stuff and pick up and drop-offs and when I'm away in the weekends, you know, that's, that's when the wife takes over and, and, and does that. So um, I suppose in some ways it's quite lucky now we've got a bit of a break and um, actually had to coach the girls' netball team last week. So it's... Um, oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, you do what you do and um, try and... Um, you know, co-share with with the wife, you know, but it's an important part, you know. They they know I'm when I'm home, I'm home 100, percent you know. But uh, they know Dad's got to go to work for a couple of weeks. But um, you know, you come back and, and do your yard, so I'm predominantly home during the week. So it's um it's cool. But having two teenage girls, bro, uh, it's, it's <laughs> and at home, it's 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 a real life, cuz I know that. <laughs> <far around. laughs> hey, bro. So um, what's all this, bro? Having your own plaque on the Walk of Fame in uh, Singatoka, Fiji. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, nah, no, nah, it's um, well, for me, it's probably one of the most uh, humbling experiences when you're able to get uh, recognised in, in enemy territory. You know, mm-hmm. so it's um, it, it's really cool for me. And then and the guy who runs it, he's he's a good mate. He runs the sevens tournament, so they yeah. bring an ambassador over. I think uh, Jonah and Campo were the first ones, and then Waisale. And um, I was lucky to be after Waisale. So I got a few boys over there now, no DJs um, on the Walk of Fame, and. Anytime you get recognised um, like that, it's always quite a cool experience. My wife's um, half Fijian, so mm. um, it's cool for her to. Um, I've, I've got a link there, and you know, it's like a second home for me going over there, and I get treated so well. And the thing about the Fijian people, they're, they're historians in rugby. They know every single rugby player that comes through um, Nandi Airport, you know, and, and, and so engaging and. Uh, they're so loving, so it's uh, it's always a, a nice place for me to go back. And when, once they found out that the wife's Fijian, then they sort of treat you like like one of their own. So mm. it's really cool for you to talk about Fano. I've always been big on taking our kids across and letting them show um, or experience mum's um, side of the side, side of the, the Fano as well. You know, because we took them to a couple of villages and they didn't have much over there in, in some mm. of the villages. So for our girls to experience that was an eye opener, but they loved it. You know and um, even though some of these kids can't speak English and, and the girls can't speak, well, they got limited Fijian, but to, to see them just go off and run around and have a good time, man, it's, it's actually quite cool and, and um, something that they're, they're very aware of. So it's, uh, it's, um, 
you know, a big part of their lives. They, they, I think they're second team, eh? When I see some of the Fijian brothers, is, is the All Blacks and the All Black mm. Sevens. They have an immense amount of respect. I can remember I was over there in 2015 um, having a bit of a holiday, and the guy in the bar, all he wanted was my All Black jersey, bro. And um, I remember. <laughs> yeah, bro. He, he, and he was like twice, he was like three times. So I couldn't believe it. He was like six foot five. He was like yeah, yeah. 120 kg, and he was a barman. I was like, you know, I'm happier. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to ask. It all fit, Yeah, bro. But I remember vividly. Um, we went out one night and um, I seen him outside of the resort and I was thinking, what's he doing? There's a whole group and they were getting picked up by a bus, taking them back to their village, you know? And I thought, ow. I mm. seen him the next night, bro, before I left. I gave him my jersey because he, I said, there nice. you go, bro. Oh, man, he would have loved it. Oh, he would have loved it, you yeah. know, yeah. So the reality, like, of in Fiji, you know, and, and being in that type, like you said, you know, some of the kids probably have no shoes or, or they're struggling. I think it's really important that we um, give back to our Fijian brothers and our Pacific Island brothers as well, eh? Oh yeah, big time, big time, you know, and then they love it, you know. I think people sort of forget how big um, or how many successful Fijians we've had. So there's a huge uh, fan support base over there for, for for New Zealand as well, you know. So I mean, the boys go over there, get treated like gods, you know. And then I just love the way that they just I come up and and so unassuming. I just want to talk and have a mm. good time, you know, and have a photo and then move on. If you need anything, they're more than willing to give it to you, you know. So if there's any small ways that uh, we give can give back. It's um, it's, 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 it means a lot to them, you know? Yeah. No, nice one, bro. Well, bro, thanks very much for all that, eh? That was um, awesome mm. insight into your um, career and into your commentary and, and the whānau, bro. We really appreciate that. But we've got um, a bit of a challenge for you, brother. Uh, Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we call it the Pick Up The Pace Challenge. It's 9 and 10. you gotta earn, you got to earn those two crayfish. Yeah, bro. Yeah, Ken Laban's got them in the freezer waiting bro. for you. Ken, Ken reckons, oh, well, I'll, get, hey, I'll get the legs in. I'll get the legs in. Ken reckons whatever crayfish we catch on the south coast of Wainui, he'll match it. <laughs> oh, all right, bro. So, what we're going to do is right, you take that, Anadu. Yeah, yeah okay. I'll do the timer here. I'll, I'll yeah. do the counting, bro. All right, yeah, so, um, you got to name nine questions in 10 seconds. All right. Nine answers. Nine answers in 10 seconds. All right. Okay. Here we go. Here comes the question Carl Tanana. World rugby commentator. Name for me nine rugby commentators. Go. Keith Quinn, Ken Laban, Willie Lossay, Sean Maloney, Greg Clark, uh, Melody Robinson, Scotty Stevenson. Hey. Oh, shivers. Here we go. What are we looking at? Hang well, on. Get it, I get seven. Hang on. We've got to go and see us, bro. Oh. This is close. Screw the knees. They're looking at me. What have we got? I'm disappointed in my effort there, boys. I'm sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Cuzzy, we've got seven, bro. Shivers. <laughs> but Don't tell me Ken got them. No, no, Ken told me if you didn't get nine, you can keep the leaks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, man, you're the, man to, boy. Shivers. To be fair, no one's got it yet. Yeah, so no one's so got don't it be feel dis- disappointed. I think those first few seconds you were a bit, bit stunned, huh? Like, oh, yeah. oh, my no. God. <laughs> No, I thought you were going to ask like nine questions. I was going, oh, holy smokes, no, I'm going to make that. But, oh, hey, uh, nah, disappointed, some, boys, disappointed. Nah, you getting right. some phone calls later. Hey, what'd you leave me out for, bro? Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. you got to work on things. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Hey, Carl, hey, thank you very much for joining us on the Pick Up The Pace podcast and taking time out of your busy schedule in these very testing times at the moment. We really appreciate it, and we hope to catch up with you again soon. And let us know when you are ever in Wainuiamata, and we'll catch up and have those crayfish together. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Nah, see, hey, boys, it's, uh, it's a real pleasure to be able to, to, to come on and, and vibe with you guys. I know you fellas are doing some mean mahi, man, so keep up the mean work. And 
no, we'll be down to Wainui. The fam- family's down there. The missus, is, uh, her family's all still down there. So, no, definitely catch up, fellas. Yeah, kia ora, Cheers, brother. Cheers, boys.